We're back with another episode of Kendall vs. Kendall presented by JensenUSA.com where we dig deep into all bike-related things that float through our brains. If you're new to us, let me introduce you. My name is Jeff Kendallweed. I've worked about 10 years now on the supplier side of the industry, seven years at IBIS, three years at WTB, and now I'm a full-time content creator managing a bunch of video projects predominantly within the bike industry. Uh, the other half of the podcast is Seth Kendall, longtime Jensen USA employee and self-admitted bike geek. Uh, well, yeah, man. Great to jump back into the uh, virtual chat room with you. And uh, kind of like we did last week, um, before we kind of get into the meat of our topic, I just wanted to check in and see, you know, what's been going on with you? How have things been going and what's been keeping you busy? Oh, man. Well, uh, <laughs> a couple of things. I jumped off of a cliff the other day yeah. on my bike. That was a little exciting. That was one of those times where I was thinking about that podcast we actually did. We were talking about mental gremlins because I had that idea two years ago and then I've, I've never actually been there with my bike, but that whole like concept, I hate jumping into water and I've never been cliff diving with even without a bike. So it was just like, whoa, this is a lot at once. Yeah. So I had some mental gremlins to overcome with that, made a video out of it. That was fun. And then the other thing I've been up to, I got a 1995 Ibis Mojo tie. It's so pretty. <laughs> yeah, it's it's definitely pretty. I like it's turning into my favorite bike. Nice. So I've been putting that thing back together in kind of like a neo retro like I wish we could have ridden this back in the 90s type yeah. setup. So I've ridden that thing a handful of times, and I'm super stoked right now on, on that bike. It's my favorite bike. I'm turning all these blue and green trails into just my new favorite trails because this bike is keeping them all so sketchy. It's To me, it's kind of like night riding, right? You can take a trail that you know or you think is easy, and then you do it at night, and you're like, oh, that's different and interesting. And it's kind of cool to see you doing it with this tie as well. So It's super fun. Well, what have you been up to lately, Seth? Uh, the thing that's kind of been all-encompassing for me uh, has been the new Velo Solutions pump track that is just like a mile from my house here. Um, you know, I got this new mountain bike, been stoked on it, gone out a bunch of times. What bike is that? Oh, uh, that was the Ritmo that I picked up nice. a little while ago. Yeah, and it's fantastic. I had this moment while out mountain biking where I did a little step-down jump uh, to it, just a medium-sized double. And when I did the step down, I realized that I did not have enough speed for the double. And so I... Oh, you got plenty of speed. You're on a Ritmo. <laughs> for sure you'll clear it. That bike goes so long on jumps. It's ridiculous. It really does. But like I, I knew it. I'd hit this before and I could just feel that I was going to come up short if I didn't get in a pedal crank. So I got half a pedal crank in, which meant that <laughs> I was riding switch foot over this jump. And I landed mm -hmm. it. I was fine. Everything went well. You didn't just take a half crank in the air so you could land smoother? No, because I am not that talented. <laughs> so I, what happened, though, is I just looked like a complete Barney in the air. <laughs> like It was all because I had my feet switched from what I normally do. And I realized I have a weakness that I am not playing to. So I went to the pump track, and I just started cranking out laps switch foot. And now uh, I'm probably around 75% oh, of wow. my kind of skill level of my strong side, you know? And so... Can you bunny hop switch foot uh, now? No, I haven't gotten to that yet, so... I can't either. It's super hard. Like, maybe up a curb, but not anything higher. Yeah, oh my so I'm, I'm starting to work on um, actually kind of uh, airing out onto the flat deck of the pump track 
um, at not high. I mean, we're talking inches, like as little as possible, but just getting comfortable with popping out there. And so then I'm going to try to work on bunny hops and stuff. So my goal for kind of 2018, like late 2018, 2019 is to, to get my switch foot game going. <laughs> well, awesome. Uh, yeah, I think that's a good amount about us for this week. So listeners, hope you enjoy getting to know us. Uh, you want to jump in? Yeah, let's jump into the podcast. Today, we're going to look at some of the top bike tech, but not just what's hot today. We're going to take a look at some of the historical changes that have kind of guided the bike industry to where bikes are today. So we've got a little bit of a list here of of top previous innovations and current day innovations that we think are the most significant, the most important. Yeah. So, you know, we're going to definitely be looking at things that we like, but some of this stuff is, is about looking at what changed the industry. So some of this stuff isn't even around, right? Like we're going to be looking at past stuff and we'll be like, this thing was significant. Um, so I'm really excited about this topic, and I think we're going to run into some old favorites. Uh, there was when I passed my list over to you, and you brought your uh, list back. I, there was things like I literally hadn't even thought about for years, and I was like, <laughs> "That's so cool! I totally forgot. That's awesome." So there's going to be some old favorites. You know, there's um, bound to be some missteps that we're going to look at over this list. And there may be even some places where, uh, you know, we disagree, right? Like there could be things where I'm like, hey, man, that innovated in a great way. And you're like, not so much, <laughs> not so much, man. Well, we do have different backgrounds yeah. for sure. So that might figure into this. But then one other thing I want to mention, this is a part one. Part two, keep this in mind because we need your feedback. Definitely. So we also want to discuss the future of bike tech. What technology do you guys think is going to be significant in the near future, in the far future? And then an easier one, what have been the worst technological missteps yep. of the past 30 some odd years of mountain biking? So keep that on the front of your brains, everyone, and email us. You can email Seth at JensenUSA.com. What's your email address, uh, Seth? So the easiest one is podcast at JensenUSA.com. Okay. Yeah, super simple. Podcast at JensenUSA.com. Send us what you think are going to be the future most important items of technology for the industry. And then also let us know... Send us your hate mail of what have been the worst technological advancements in this bike Absolutely. industry. Podcast at JensenUSA.com. Awesome. Well, Jeff, uh, you know, why don't you get us started? Uh, what's some things that make your uh, past innovative tech? Well, <laughs> the first thing I want to bring up here are, are actually 10 by 135 rear end spacing, because that paved the way for a lot of things forwards. And that was... That standard came out, I don't know when Charlie Cunningham started doing that, but I think it was like 83 yeah. or 82, like early 80s. And that standard stayed true to even through the 12 by 142s. That's still mm -hmm. a 12 by 142 rear end is still a 135 hub yep. width. So we started, we figured out how to use a bigger axle that you know, is bigger in diameter, but that same width stuck around for so long. So I think that rear end spacing was pretty darn significant. Yeah, and I think it really allowed us to start messing with different parts of the bike over the years, right? I definitely think uh, 10 by 135 um, lands as an important thing. And I think it paved the way. Obviously, we're going to you know, run into the thing of standards, right? We have yeah. um, 142 spacing. We then have boost. Now we're talking about super boost. So there are some things that it kind of paved the way for uh, in the future. Whether you think those are good or missteps, that's a, that's a good question for you, sending your emails to podcast at Jensen USA. Um, <laughs> I hope we get a lot of emails on this. I'm excited to see what people think. 
Oh, dude, I'm so stoked to hear what our listeners are going to say, uh, you know, because like, that's the thing, right? This is this is an industry where we are learning and creating as we go. Uh, there is not a roadmap here for us. And um, so I'm definitely curious to see what our listeners think and to have them be an active part of this. So uh, cool. Yeah. Um, so on the 10 by 135, right, we obviously have a few things going on there. How is this different than what the uh, tradition of uh, uh, bikes came from? Like, what were we at before that? Yeah, I don't even know what we were at before that. I'm just amazed that it stuck around <laughs> for that long. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, I mean, like if we look at, at um, you know, bikes that that were common prior uh, you know, everything was on a narrower side, right? And and we can see that um, through kind of the, the history. But I think the, the 10 by 135 really allowed us to start stepping out uh, and going into some other stuff. And I think that brings me to kind of one of my top things, which I, I every time I say this, I eat crow because I was such a staunch, like, 26, 27, 5 guy. Oh, man, are you talking uh, about wheel yep, size? Yep, 29 wheels. I will put that on my past list as a one of the most influential innovations um and i i I realize we're still in it right now so it kind of hits my present list as well because we're seeing it why do you think it's such a key innovation Man, because it forced frame designers and wheel manufacturers tire manufacturers everybody to up their game right like um there was this thing bigger wheels roll over stuff better so like in a world of off-road the idea that you can roll over things is common right i used to do off-road trucks and stuff the bigger the tire the better off you were at climbing over things right um so (laughs) and the more your axles broke and the more it cost to get a new tire yeah (laughs) yeah so you just had to get really beefy axles and stuff and so that's that's kind of the thing that challenged the bike industry right like on a truck or a car like for the most part you can kind of just keep beefing things up and as long as you're geared right or have enough horsepower you're good on a bike it's a little different because the horsepower is you right there's no great way besides training to up that horsepower so keeping things light yet strong is, is a challenge and i think that 29er wheels kind of forced the hand of manufacturing wheels etc to innovate in that space and i think we're kind of seeing it with tires more so than anything right now um actually tires and rims are kind of the big ones i think that are happening right now um, and frame design too, because people you have to have short chain stays on these twenty yes, niners, right. and then people wanted to stick steep head tube angles on their old twenty niners. Cue the twenty two thousand eight tall boy that ejected me over the handlebars. <laughs> ejected every everybody. <laughs> but then, as the twenty nine inch wheels were so you know people loved them so much, frames had to develop to work around that, and they've came a long yeah. way. And I don't, I think you're right that the twenty nine inch wheel caused a lot of that development. I don't think the 29-inch wheel is all that great versus 27.5 off-road. I don't really care that much if I'm yeah. riding the big one versus the small one. I don't think that. I think the frame geometry has a bigger feel on the ride than the wheel size. Yeah, and I, but I agree I'm with, with your you. point on the. But I, I I do stick by that. I think the wheel size forced the hand, right? Like I think 27.5 mm-hmm. bikes got better because of 29 bikes, and not it's not the only reason. I think oh, it totally, is one yeah, of the reasons, though. So yeah. Uh, yeah, so that's that's one of mine. What's another one of yours from the past? Oh, man, I think clutch derailers. Yes. I forget what year they really took off, but I feel like it was 2011 or something. Uh-huh. 
Shimano came out with Dynasys 10 speed, and that was the first time the on the XTR only uh-huh. you had Shadow Plus. And man, on my old bike, I'm running the Shadow Plus, and that allows me to then run a one by yep. drivetrain. And it's just quiet, silent. I don't have to have an ugly chainstay protector in my tie frame. I can just see more uh-huh. tie, so that's more better. <laughs> more yeah. tie, more better. I like it. Yeah. Yeah, man. So I remember that too, right? Like, I remember it coming out on various news feeds. I can't even remember. Uh, let's say it was Bike Rumor or Pink Bike or whoever I was reading. And literally, it felt like the bike community had this like collective, like, Oh, why hadn't <laughs> we done this before? And right? I, man, props to Shimano. Like they, they brought uh, honestly probably one of the biggest innovations to drivetrain in man our modern history. You know, like uh, adding yeah. gears and stuff. Yeah, the, there's something to that. You know, big chain rings, all that. Like or small chain rings, big cassettes. Like. I, I get it. Those are all cool, but those feel like uh, kind of evolutions. This felt like a revolution. You were like, oh, yeah, this changes <laughs> things. So, because. And you know, I'm really stoked that Shimano didn't file some kind oh, of a patent or whatever or chase after SRAM because SRAM came out pretty quickly with their version and it worked really well mm-hmm. too. So I'm so glad those two were able to coexist on that technology. Yeah, for once, right? Like, although they, uh, they <laughs> play pretty well together as far as like, we'll go similar paths, but separate kindly. As far but. as we can tell, they play well <laughs> right? together. There could be lawyers just lockstep always that we don't even right? know about. I mean, that's the whole different side of the uh, industry. And I haven't heard of anything, but I'm sure they're, I've heard rumors out on the suspension side of things. Some of those companies are just like ready to attack. But at the same time, they're like, Oh, I guess we should. Yeah, uh, right. Well, yeah, no, clutch derailers definitely your thing. And thank goodness for Shimano bringing it out and for them playing nicely, like super cool of them. Yeah. Um, and I think that leads to my other one, which is one by everything. Like I, <laughs> I have one by on my uh, gravel grinder. I have one by on you know my hardtail. I rock one by on my mountain bike, and I was one of those um, early adopters in one by back when it wasn't clutch derailers and all that so we so when was your first one by oh bike man you know i think we were doing what was i was riding probably a diamondback mission at that time and this would have been like 2010 i think 2000 oh, yeah so it was prior <laughs> to clutch and we were running yep. all kinds of like chain guides and like some of it home batch you know style stuff where we were taking like pvc and like taping it to our chain stay and running the chain through it so that that worked pretty well i had friends in spain do that with surgical tubing and some yeah, zip ties. Right? same idea and it worked pretty well to help them out and keep it but they would do that with even a two by setup for extra yep. retention and that still worked pretty yeah, well yeah so we had all these things but man when when the clutch derailleur came out that really helped and uh man i'm a huge fan of one by it really makes a lot of sense in off-road ca- uh, applications uh, the place I've found that it struggles for me a little bit is I love my gravel bike, but I ride it on gravel. I ride it on asphalt and concrete and whatever. Like I'm out there ripping it. It is my the speed differential is so big for a gravel bike when you're going up a 25% grade versus going down some kind yeah. of a 60 mile an hour descent. You have to have such a big range because of that speed difference. Yep. Whereas on a mountain bike, the fastest you're going off road might be 30, yep. 40. And then the slowest is the same as the gravel bike slowest. So it's easier to do the one by on the, on the mountain. Bike yeah. Sure. And you know, like I'm, I have this hope. I wrote a thing a while back about what I'm hoping to come from Sram Shimano. Those guys is a, uh, narrow range, but, uh, high count 
cassette. And so basically, you know, like 12 speed, sure, I'm all in for that, but like tight clusters with a narrower range. So instead of being, uh, you know, 10 to 42 or 10 to 50, like we see from SRAM cassettes, where I would love something that is like a 10 to 36 and just tight, you know? Uh, and that would be great for my gravel bike, but that's a whole different thing. That would right? be so hard to sell. I know. That, oh man, in this day and age when you go through like, what's the biggest? What's, oh, this one is, <laughs> I'm not getting anything for my money on yep. this cassette. It, it, would, oh. it would absolutely be that, but I'm hopeful, uh, you know, uh, 3T, I think came out with something kind of like that, kind of crazy expensive. So I'm hoping someone else comes with something a little cheaper. But anyways, uh, so I'm a huge fan of one bike. It does have its limitations in certain applications, but man, in the mountain bike world, I have a hard time arguing against it unless you're just like straight up bike packing all the time and just dragging yeah, tons of weight. The weight definitely makes sense to have the, the wider ratio. And then also big elevation, especially with weight, that all is another situation. And if you're if you're heavy, if you weigh a lot, if you're 200 plus. Yeah, so know. thank goodness we still have two by, um, but man, it's... Uh, and we, we have, have three by two. Yeah. I've seen Shimano catalogs. Yeah, it's still out there. You know, it's not quite as common. But you know, I've I've got a buddy who's rocking like a fifteen year old uh, Kona out here, and it's three by. And like, man, he still rails nice. that thing. It's awesome to watch him. So, um, yeah. Uh, what's next on your list of past items? You know, I think tubeless tires deserve a little bit. And I think tubeless can kind of. Also be just modern tire development. So tubeless is definitely huge in my eyes, but then also Mm multi-compound tires. I don't remember. Like, I remember IRC came out with, like, a foam insert in the sidewall or something. And then people always talked about, like, there's Kevlar in this tire. I never really believed it. But then I don't even know what the first tire was that really pulled this off. But once we started getting multiple compounds in a tire, we could have pretty good support, base support of the knobs, but then real soft, tacky rubber that would hook up real good. So... That was probably pretty early, like oh five, oh three, in there ish. I don't even know. But tubeless, man, that's a oh, that's a huge step. Forward. Yeah, you know, and I think that opened the door for you know things like lower pressure and uh, ultimately this kind of wider tire movement that's been going on, and um, it kind of set the stage for all of that. And so I think you're yeah. you're absolutely onto something. Here's the other thing, and I know some people struggle with uh, tubeless tires, but man, if I look at what my time spent in the shop and then my own personal (laughs) riding time, the people that I had set up with tubeless and myself, the number of flats that would come through that were devastating flats that ended your ride or anything was so low compared to what it had been. Um, You know, I spent my last bunch of years in Southern California and goat heads are like a true thing. I mean, if you guys haven't ever seen a goat head, it looks like a kind of like a devil type of goat looking thing, you know, like <laughs> big old horn. It looks like some pre- like prehistoric battle yeah, axe man, or something. It's crazy. <laughs> but just on a very miniature scale. And it's like, it's, you know, three spikes on these things and they go in different directions and they're huge. I mean, they, they will do damage to a tire. And yeah. I remember like the first time I ran tubeless, running down hold of crooks, going through stuff and coming back and just literally seeing my tire covered in goat heads, <laughs> but I was not flat. And I was just like, success. Nice. <laughs> it has worked. <laughs> so I remember seeing that in the desert in Mexico and Baja, just like, oh my yeah. gosh, this tire is full of thorns, but they dumped so much slime in there and it was tubeless. It I was, we were able to keep riding. It was yeah, great. man, it's, it's definitely changed things. And 
you know, there's there's always challenges with it. Uh, occasionally, it can be a little bit cha- a little bit challenging to mount certain tire and uh, wheel or rim combos. Although that seems to be getting way better these days. It used to be like you had to use giant metal wrenches and stuff. It was like working on motorcycle tires. <laughs> and now, like it's generally pretty easy. The the um, beads are are setting up better these days where it just kind of can pop on. Like I actually saw in your... Well, the wide rims help a ton right? with that. Oh my goodness. Like trying to set up those 35 Ibis or even WTB rims, it doesn't even matter the brand. The wider the rim, the faster than easier the tire is going to yep. set up. It just is able to just hit that, that bead or sidewall just a little bit easier and move across there. And you have that deeper channel too that's wider, so it's easier to mount it in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. So I did see, though, on your uh, Mojo Tie video, I, it looked like you got that tire set up with your uh, Topeak, the uh, booster-style pump. In the first try? Yeah, pump works pretty well. It just takes me like, it takes a little while to pump it all the way up and I have an air compressor. And so the air compressor is so much faster. I use that a lot. But that Topeak pump does work really well. I've been yeah, I keep it. one like that in my in my van. And uh, whenever I'm at the trail, That's what man, I do with like, mine too, it's yeah. so great. Because like if something happens or if you want to change out a tire or something, it's so convenient. And yep, it's a little bit of work to get it pressurized, but super cool. So I really want to make a travel size version out of old PVC pipe. Okay. Just like kind of like a little like a bomb or whatever, like just a sealed off thing that I can pressurize with a mini pump or at a gas station and then have a valve on that that I can use to charge or whatever. So I can inflate a tubeless tire when on the road for a video shoot should I need to swap a tire. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, because that uh, Topeak is so heavy. The thing weighs like 15 pounds and it's never going to fit in the suitcase that I travel with. Right, Yeah, it's not a travel item. Fair enough. Well, I feel like I saw something floating around the internet at one point that was like that, uh, like kind of a homebrew style. But I feel like I saw it with a um, fire extinguisher. So, anyways, food for thought. <laughs> I don't, I don't know, man. I just had an RC lipo battery explode in my garage, so I had an ext- oh. done up fire extinguisher from putting the fire out. So, man, maybe it's oh, time to do a little that thing Google out. searching and see see what you can yeah, do with that. Yeah, that would just so, be cool for effect. Oh man, I am glad that your garage is still there because those lipo batteries can be crazy. So yeah, and it was right next to a jug of race gas from oh, my dirt bike too. <laughs> I had it in a fireproof bag, but there was fire all over the place. I don't know. I'm sure the bag helped, oh. but yikes! It was that was gnarly. Oh, crazy. Uh, man. Okay. So let's see what else is on our list here. Uh, you know, so we talked about 10 by 135 axles, I think through Mm -hmm. axles, like true legit through axles definitely have helped to innovate the game. Um, just bringing a lot of stiffness, you know, again, as we move to bigger wheels and, um, it's not just stiffness. It's just easier and safer. <laughs> yeah, right? You have an open dropout hub. Like even back in the day, 2010, 11, Santa Cruz still used mostly open drop. The Nomad Carbon was yep. an open dropout. And if your wheel pops out or gets loose, it can just munch those carbon dropouts a yeah. ton. And uh, man, I've seen enough videos and uh, stuff watching people often on BMX bikes, surprisingly. But, you know, same thing, like the wheelie or whatever and the wheel drops out and then boom, onto the fork and over the bars. Yeah, no fun. So through axles definitely made that easier. Um, You know, I think it it was one of those things where we had to figure out some silly things to go along with it. We had all these um, uh, things for like your roof rack where you carried your wheel in there and now those were obsolete (laughs) and whatever. 
But all in all, in all I think that was a, a really good thing that just brought a safer, quicker, easier, stiffer experience to the whole thing. And I'm glad yeah. to see it on forks and rear ends. Now, I will put a caveat in here. I bet we're going to get some statements in our podcast at JensenUSA.com email because... While I love through axles, obviously there have been some axle standards and stuff that people have uh, experienced some frustration with. So there may be some caveat to my statement of like, I love through axles, but <laughs> so. I just love through axles that have a quick release lever on them. So thank goodness I have a bunch of these Shimano through axles that I can stick into my Ibis bikes because I love not having to deal with a five mil Allen key getting a, a wheel off. That's what's always kind of funny to, to watch is if you dig into the comments on, uh, you know, Vital or whatever, it, it, very often you'll see people who lament these QR ones. And, um, you know, I, I travel with my bike in the van most of the time. I do have a rack on the back, okay. but I, I like the security of it in the van. I like that I can go on dirty, you know, dusty roads and not worry about just drenching my uh, drivetrain in tons of dust and everything. Cause I know I'm going to get that on the trail, but man, it's nice to pull your bike out and just know that like your stanchions are clean and your drivetrain is clean and it's ready to go hit the trail and work efficiently. And so for me, I love the QR through axle because it makes it all so easy to drop that in my van and just be ready to go. But it's funny in the comments, you'll see a lot of people who are like, Oh, it's going to get caught on rocks and trail debris and da -da -da. and you know, yeah. they're, they're all for it. And uh, my frustration is uh, when I have a, a non-QR style and I'm like digging around trying to find a tool somewhere in order to do something. So it's funny. It's a preference. But the good thing is you can get it in either version these days. So almost always there's an right? option. Thank goodness. Yeah. for that. Options I'm are all good. for that. Uh, I see the SPD clipless pedals are on your list. and I, Have you ever tried to ride with toe straps and old school clips? I, so, I only as a kid. Like I, oh, it's terrifying. I did not spend any amount. Well, I'm trying to think. Did I when I was in sixth grade? I don't think I did. I think I was on flats even then. So, yeah. So, I'll give you that. Like I, I like SPDs in that sense, and I like them for my gravel bike. But, man, I am a flat pedal fan like through and through, which is funny because I did not come from there. So uh, give us a, give us your experience on kind of the old toe straps, the actual. Well, if you ever try to ride with the old toe straps and you're trying to go fast, you need to pull a foot out to drift through a corner, yet you're not going to get your foot out in time yeah. to drift through that corner. No yeah. way. Now, so. how about, I'm sure, okay, so you, you had some bikes that put you over the bars. How was it with those in that situation? You know, I never rode them enough off road. Like, I just immediately knew, even at like 11, 12 okay. years old, these things are a joke. Yeah. And so SPDs, they were, ah, man, I don't know if it was 94, 95, 96, but multi-release SPD, I think, is really the big technological advance. So I remember my first SPDs, 95, they only released to the outside. They were not multi-release. And I remember multi-release became kind of the norm a year or two later. I mean, was it the Shimano 747s were the first one? I don't know. It was so long yeah. ago. I, I won't remember those numbers, but history. yeah, like it's yeah. been a while. And, you know, I saw that a lot in the shops is um, we, we sell both a, um, a multi-release and a standard 
they still make this thing. I right? can't believe they still make that thing. But for road racing, I guess. But then who's road racing in SPDs? Yeah, days? right. I mean, I like it seems like we don't really need that product. But man, it's funny because uh, a lot of riders would come in and be like, "I need these multi-release ones," and we're like, "Yeah, you absolutely do." Like I don't know why you have the other <laughs> ones. So yeah, yeah, I'm with you. I I. I'm going to hesitate on my total support of SPDs. I get where you're coming from, but I personally just like, I love my flat pedals. And so I really have a hard time being like, yeah, SPDs. But meanwhile, my buddy Mike would, you know, tell me all day, all day long that I am completely (laughs) wrong on flats and that I should be riding SPDs and everything. So, um, cool. Uh, I see splined bottom brackets. I want you to dig into this one. I've been riding for a long time, as have you, and I can definitely remember just blowing through bottom mm-hmm. brackets in the mid-1990s, late-1990s, when Isis came out. I was so excited. Everyone else hates Isis because it's so big that the bottom bracket bearings had to get right. really small and then wore out kind of quick. But man, I'd so much rather replace a bottom bracket every year than have to like just smack my nuts on the saddle when my tapered square taper bottom bracket snaps into pieces so So, just to make sure everybody's caught up on this for people who don't know spline bottom brackets what is this compared to what we were coming from we came from more of like a a very traditional like but so first of all cranks connect your pedals to your bike more Mm -hmm. or less and the way the crank the crank supports you're almost your full body weight when you're really riding aggressively and back in the day, cranks slid on to a square spindle. It was just straight up square, four sides, mm-hmm. and that was it. And then in probably 98, 99, Shimano did the XDR crank and a partial spline, mm-hmm. but it cost an arm and a leg, and people like me couldn't afford it. <laughs> so when Isis came out, and I think it was 99-ish, it uses a spline system. So there's like eight or 12, I forget exactly how many ridges on a cylindrical spindle and the crank was machined to fit on that and to match onto that and that made such a huge difference in the strength of those things oh my so if you're imagining this people out on the uh interweb world listening to us or on your favorite podcast this is going to be a lot like a cog looking sort of setup with longer splines obviously uh and it slides over and it really allows that crank to engage at multiple different angles, right? So that's kind of what's important yeah. here too, is that you could be riding... The stress isn't supported on four edges, it's supported on 12 yeah, edges at right? least. right, so more surface area, more engagement, and you could ride with your foot anywhere in the clocking of your cranks, and you would uh, be engaged. I think Jeff just fell down, guys. <laughs> oh, he's pulling one out. So I've got a modern day XT crank set here, and Shimano and SRAM, both still use splines, but yeah, oh my goodness, I don't know if that's 48 or 32 or what, but current day cranks are still using this design. Now they're two pieces, so they've permanently pressed the spindle into the crank arm. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, we had three pieces. But yeah, that that innovation is still something we just kind of take for granted today. Yeah. So uh, may we never forget the idiocy of square taper for aggressive Oh my gosh, I, I have seen so <laughs> many square taper crank arms fall off in rides and yep. you're just like how sketchy was that so I, i'm Ugh. with you i'm glad you had this on the list this did not make my list when i was thinking of it but when you sent this over i was like oh my goodness you are absolutely right this dude i'm living in retro land riding this mojo tie people are like oh you need some old school xt cranks and i'm like no i don't need it hematoma <laughs> on my private parts uh, no I thank need to you be safe i'm gonna go with safe <laughs> so yeah all yeah. right so 
my oh, my last one on here in in uh, past innovations is uh, right again from about 2010 because this is actually when I started at Jensen. I remember. Um, meeting my buddy Mike he's still a Jensen super rad dude but uh he he and I were so excited about uh this thing that came out and it proved to be his nemesis in a lot of ways because at the time he worked in warranty Uh. but that is dropper post and I still to this day will argue that this is probably one of the number one things to innovate mountain biking and I think it both innovated (laughs) frame design and the ability for frame designers to get unique and interesting but I also think it innovated the way that we actually interact with our bikes and the way we ride and the the um the way that riders nowadays like casual riders even are more talented than they were 10 years ago uh, riding on, you know, nice bikes at the time, but they like this thing helped to make it so that you can ride more aggressively while still being efficient and, you know, jumping and cornering, right. And, you know, innovated our body position. So I'm going dropper post, even though there was a ton of years of like hard warranties and frustration with mechanics and all that kind of stuff. I still think this is probably like one of my number one. Interesting. You know, I kind of was a, I was not an early adopter of dropper seat posts. I just, I saw how clunky they were, but I just kind of felt like there has got to be a better solution. And still to this day, I think there's a better solution than a telescoping seat post. I think we're going to figure something out in five, 10, 20. I don't know how long it'll be, but I think, I think there's even a better way that's less clunky to get the saddle out of the way or make a bike that you can somehow pedal without needing to sit down. So yeah. I'm still like, yeah, I agree with you that they've changed things a lot, but I still don't think we're there Interesting. in terms of that whole design concept. I really like, I use a PNW Bachelor mm-hmm. 170. That thing is smooth as butter and it works. It's super reliable. I love it. But man, I feel like there's got to be, like, we're not thinking out of the box enough on that. I like how specialized system, I like how that does change the angle of the saddle. Because if you ever try to sit down and pedal with your saddle yeah, still totally right? flat, it feels terrible. When it, like Dirt jumpers always have their saddle canted back. That's because when you're sitting down that low, you kind of need that. So I don't I think there's still some big advancements to be had in, this, in the seat post. Yeah, though. and I, I think, thankfully, we're kind of in that era where that's starting to happen, right? Like, we're seeing frame designers um, who are truly changing up the way that uh, front triangle kind of shaped uh, or is shaped. And you see this kind of with the, the Ritmo, right, being a great example of this uh, very short uh, seat tube that's above the top tube and a really long seat tube straight below it in order to accommodate a really long dropper. We also see it with dropper posts just getting way more reliable and getting longer and lighter and stuff. So I think there's some stuff there. And then I think you're right that at some point we're going to like rethink things altogether. But I have some hesitance that that's going to come easily because <laughs> uh, there yeah, are... I agree that's not going to be easy. The, but the bike man. community tends to be... Um, I'm going to say this nicely, but uh, slow to adopt massive reform, right? Like, so you see some of these these oh, yeah. uh, prototype bikes that people put out that have weird swoopy lines and they drop out certain tubes and stuff like that. And they may or may not be good, but it's often met with like a big hesitant, no thanks. And so it, it, there's a little bit of hesitance to 
um, innovate in that space. And I think what we'd have to do to make kind of your dropper posts slash change in geometry dream happen <laughs> would have to change the form factor of biking in a pretty dramatic way. So. Well, you look at a motorcycle and, you know, that saddle's at the same height the whole time and it, it manages to work out just fine. So, yeah, yeah. You know, I think I think you might, I don't know what the future is going to be. I'm totally clueless, but I think that we just, someone's going to get more creative and figure something out and it's going to be obvious. Yep. I don't know. I really hope it does not involve batteries, LiPo batteries, electronics, GPS. I hope it's sands, more all that. St- more stuff to catch your, your uh, garage on fire. <laughs> <laughs> Batteries on bikes, I don't know. I I like the simplicity of a bike without that stuff, but I do think the next immediate development with dropper posts are going to be posts that'll go up and down on their own because why are we sitting down on the saddle right in front of really gnarly things? We need to be standing up in our attack position, but currently we have to sit down and do exactly what we shouldn't do right in front of anything technical after we've been pedaling a bunch. So I think that'll be the next immediate bit of tech, but then I think there's... Still a lot more. I still think the dropper post in general is kind of clunky. Yeah. But yeah, I agree that it's, it's changed I, things for the better. And yeah, I think that's that's probably a fair statement. You know, it's not a uh, perfect solution for sure. Um, but man, it's... I, I think back to some of the <laughs> over-the-bar moments that I had on jumps where, yeah, the post was up in my butt and I just got over that yeah. front wheel while I was in the air and there was uh. nothing I could do because I could not shift my weight back and... I remember no. like um, even a lot of that's long stems. Yeah, too. right. Yeah. So that definitely was a thing. <laughs> um, but I remember even having a quick release lever and I learned how to basically grab the nose of my saddle with my legs, release the lever, drop my saddle, <laughs> clamp the lever and then descend. And uh, so I was trying yeah. to keep my flow of riding without stopping while, you know, holding on with one hand and uh, man, dropper post is way better. So, uh, yeah, I'll give yeah. you that. <laughs> Sweet. I think that covers most of what we looked at at the past. Anything you missed, Jeff? You know, I think there's tons more. So maybe our listeners can let us know what mm-hmm. we missed in the most important previous technological advancements in yeah. cycling. So uh, let's start looking at what's going on today. Um, you know, what's in the, the present stuff? Uh, I, I'll, again, I'll let you start, Jeff. What, I think your your comment about long top tube, steep seat tube, slack head angle, kind of new school yep. trail geometry. I think that's pretty spot on. Yeah, and obviously that's a big bag, right? Like I listed most everything about a bike at this point, um, <laughs> but there is something to that. You know, I've I've jumped on some of my old bikes uh, as I come across them, and they're fun, right? Like there's a lot of cool stuff going on. But, uh, you know, I even look at that video you do, you did of the Mojo tie, and I can watch you in your point of view camera and you're like ripping through what would be a fairly easy trail. And you're going, what am I doing? What am I doing? And you do these little ledge <laughs> drops and stuff. And it's because our, our geometry has allowed us to push faster, harder, and more oh, yeah. thoroughly through corners and such. And so... Our bikes are so much more stable now than they used to be. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's a huge And again, I think this plays into the average rider these days can be a more rowdy rider than they used to be able to uh, because the bikes are so capable. You know, it's there is something about the talent that the bike allows you to express out on the trail. So, 
uh, yeah, long top tubes has been a big win for me. I'm not a very tall guy. I'm 5'9". If I'm feeling feisty, I'm 5'9 and a half, right? So not a tall <laughs> dude. Um, but I love like kind of feeling spread out a little bit. It feels like I have a little more room to work around things, uh, to be a little more liberal as I'm jumping or descending and get that body position right. Um, and, and then the steep seat tube angle for me has been really helpful as well because I am pulled, you know, kind of stretched out and then it puts me in this efficient position for pedaling when that dropper post is in the upright position. And then slack head angles. I always keep wondering, when are we going to reach the end? Like, what is the number that's too far? Cause man, I remember this with snowboarding where like my feet kept getting wider and wider. And then one day I was like, wow, this is not good. <laughs> and they now if you look at snowboarding... It's like handlebar width over the last seven years. It's gotten so right? wide. Now we're finally coming back a little Speaking bit. Speaking of, do you remember... Oh, man, who was it? Uh, there was a handlebar company, and I swear they did this as just a kind of screw you to this whole like wider, wider thing, where they released a um, thousand millimeter handlebar. Do you remember this? <laughs> Um, I don't remember the thousand I'm millimeter, to... but that's absurd. I think 800 is way, I, I don't know who actually fits an 800 millimeter width bar, but whatever. Yeah. I mean, so know, folks want to run it. They I'm can run current... it. I think Bontrager goes like 850 or something. Yeah. And I'm currently running eights on the new Ritmo and it's because I'm a little, uh, so I'm both stoked and a little bit frustrated at Ibis because they made these new bars that have the, um, screw on ends, um, like actually didn't uh spank do that originally with their aluminum bars i think odi did the wing tips back in the day yeah odi so cool thing i love that i love that you can kind of customize the only thing i'm frustrated with is that with the the screw in things i'm at 800 if i take it out i'm at 750 and my magic number is like 760 (laughs) and well then cut your little inserts down so they're just five yeah so i'm gonna need to do that um but it's just like one of those things where i'm like come on like can't you just give me different (laughs) inserts and anyways um but yeah i think you're you're on to something right like there are probably people who stand at six three and have broad shoulders who rock a 800 and it's like the width to do but i remember dude i see kids who are like 13 years old riding 800 mil bars and i'm just like oh yeah (laughs) could be having so much more fun right now i'm absolutely with you you know like it's again people coming in through the shop i always would be like i want you to put your arms at like a comfortable position out in front of you and like it was never wide arms looking like wings you know um and so we definitely i think there was this movement I think it was more so years ago because we were doing things that were 850 and beyond and whatever. But I think we're starting to come back. And you see this with a lot of riders, right? Like, um, uh, I'm trying to remember who it was that I was watching the other day who was like, yeah, man, I run 750s. And he's like a sick... Richie, Richie Rude, Rude runs That's really it. narrow yeah. bars. And he, yeah. he's in the 740s. He was running 740s for a while too, yeah. Um, yeah. And, and he wrote a size medium, even though he's like fairly like 5'11 or 6'4. Yeah, or he's something. on the taller side. So, you know, it's like, I think uh, this brings me all to that thing of like, where is the end of head angles and wide bars and all that? And I don't know yet, but so far I have yet, like every time my head angle gets a little slacker on a new bike, I, I'm not upset because the bike is so composed in the climbing and kind of efficient pedaling stuff that I'm like, 
now it's still really fun with this head angle and I can charge harder. So I, I think there's going to be a time where we're too long, we're too slack, we're too short in the rear end, you know, those things. I just don't know when that is yet. Um, but I think there will be a time. So yeah. Uh, okay. So what, what else is on your list here? You know, I think uh, you had a pretty good comment about easily tunable suspension. So current day bike tech. So air suspensions all over the place. Some folks really want coil to make a comeback. Mm -hmm. I think that depends more on the leverage ratio of your particular frame. Coils are always perfectly linear, F equals KX. And then air springs. some knowledge down. Yeah, a little bit of physics there. And then with air springs, you can actually adjust that volume to give a little bit of more of a curve to it and make it more progressive. So if you're designing a bike, it's going to work for everyone. You can't make it too progressive because then the average guy is not going to be able to get all that suspension travel and the bike won't feel right. So now we can just add these simple little volume reducers and all of a sudden the bike goes from like really easy to get full travel Mm -hmm. for an aggressive guy to like very responsive, very high performance. And it's so easy to do. Yeah. And I'm kind of right in the midst of that. I actually used your video the other day to tune my DPX2 from Fox. Um, (laughs) And I'll tell you, you and I are very close in our settings. Like really, I'm I'm a few clicks off uh, on rebound. And I think my pressure was just a few pounds different is what we ended up with, but it was really close. So it was rad because I, you know, at that time I had ridden and I got it just ballpark set up the first time I went out and I immediately was like, okay, this is not set up right, you know, and I watched your video next and I was like, (laughs) I bet he and I are close. Like he's a way better rider, obviously, but like, I bet we're close. So I basically did your tune exactly, went out and rode and it was like so close to perfect <laughs> that I only had to make like a couple little adjustments. And uh, honestly, it was primarily just rebound was the main thing. And um, did you go slower or faster? Uh, I went just a little bit slower. So, okay. um, I've been trying to do faster rebound lately. Andy at Ibis is telling me how good fast rebound is, and I've always ran it like crazy slow. So I'm trying to get into the faster th- side yeah, of things. Yeah, right so now. I think because my air pressure was a little different, um, I was getting the bounce off of uh, the curb drop test, you know? I was okay. getting that. Yeah. So I had to take, I think okay. it was like literally one or two clicks. So very close. I mean, we're, we're talking. Yeah, and it also depends on your saddle position, your bar width, your stem yep. length, and your fork setup, everything. So yeah, cool. Yeah, so still to to have that though so thank you and if anyone out there hasn't used that and you're running that shock dude check it out it is such a good tuning guide like it's super clear and it gets you a good (laughs) ballpark even if you're not the same size as jeff like it's definitely a good ballpark to kind of gauge like oh i weigh more than jeff so i'm gonna do this and so i think most people weigh more than i do (laughs) well fair enough (laughs) I've been gaining a bunch of weight lately, though. I haven't actually weighed myself in like six months. I'm kind of afraid to weigh myself because I see my shock pressures going oh, up. Man. Oh, man. Well, hey, man, like uh, just blame it on the shoulder, right? Like Dad yeah. bod. Dad bod. <laughs> Dad bod. <laughs> I love it. So you had a good point about current day technology that, that's really important. Um, and you mentioned the super muter commuter. What, what do you mean by a super muter commuter? Yeah, the Seth? super muter. Uh, that's a term for my buddy Andy again. Um, and, you know, it's it's funny because I think this is important in a really odd sort of sense, right? This is not innovating mountain bikes. This is innovating bike culture. 
because what we've had is for a long time we've had road culture and we've had mountain bike culture and then there's BMX right and those are kind of your your three major groupings right and the commuter was always kind of this thing of like you're not a serious biker right like you use it to get to work or whatever but what I think I've been seeing recently with these super muters is they are highly influenced commuter bikes by the mountain bike breed, right? So if we look at um, hardtails and fatter tires and knobbier tires and all that kind of stuff, these super muters are um, kind of this new era of thing. And you can see it from Kona and um, like Specialized and all these guys are pulling out these different um, products that are wide tire road bikes that have kind of aggressive geometry and um, some are even incorporating some suspension-esque type things, uh, which I have my hesitance on some of that, but you know, um, <laughs> but I think it brings, uh, a change in, in bike culture to where commuting is this new thing, right? Like it's a newfound joy of like ripping your bike through cities and urban places and across you know the random gravel trail that's between your house and your work and uh, you've got people who w would never be a road biker who are jumping on these semi road bikes and and going out for big rides and uh, you've got bikers who are, would always be stuck on the road who are now kind of starting to dabble into mountain bike and I think it's it's a, a really important tech innovation for changing bike culture. So it's kind of funny because I don't think it's really changing mountain bikes and I don't think it's really changing road bikes, but I do think it's changing bike culture as we're getting these. And I have one. I, I have a Kona Private Jake with 43C tires on it and I, nice. I jump it. I, uh, you know, <laughs> like not super high, but I road ride it. I still hold two koms on that in my old area yeah. and you know like and they're road koms that's the other thing is you know this like <laughs> fat tired thing oh is it's my road bike and i actually don't own any road bikes anymore because i have so much fun uh kind of cross trailing that thing you know on asphalt to dirt and just wherever i want to go and nice. so yeah, that's kind of my my super muter spiel. Well, let's see. We got a couple yeah. other things here on uh, current day tech that's super significant. I would say that the um, let's see, I would say that the carbon rim advancement has come quite a long way over the last ten or so years. Yeah, and you know, it's it's an impressive thing, right? Because carbon is a in a sense a delicate material, right? It's light, it's refined, and um, the old story was you never clamped your carbon frame in, in a um, bike stand because it would crush. So the idea of throwing carbon at wheels sounds counterintuitive. And yet we have these super strong <laughs> wheels that can mob and handle things. And they come with things like lifetime warranties. And yeah. yeah. Well, what they've done is they've allowed things like 29-inch wheels. They've allowed 27.5 wheels. They've allowed the weights to not be over the top yeah. with these wide widths. And so that's opened the doors for, yes, plump, plumper, bigger sized tires. But it's just the, I don't know, the bang for the buck at this point. Like, remember when Envy's first came out, mm -hmm. it was, what, three grand for a wheel set. And they were, you know, they were super crazy stiff and rode yep. kind of crazy stiff. 
but they've come so far since then, and we're almost kind of relying on them. I mean, I still have some aluminum rims here, and I still really like them in the wintertime mm-hmm. when I just want to run irresponsibly low pressures and really smash. Mm-hmm. But I think in the next year or two, carbon will fully replace that, and I can just fully smash the carbon into stuff. So. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's that's helped a lot of the current tire tech advance a lot. And then bikes, as you've been talking about, that long slacks, deep seat tube based around 29-inch wheels. Mm-hmm. I don't think we'd be there if it wasn't for rideable carbon, you know, off-road worthy carbon rims. Yeah, and it's amazing how much they can take, right? Like I I actually am not on any carbon rims right now. I'm on all aluminum. Um, oh, wow. But, uh, <laughs> I spent... Neanderthal Seth over there. I know, right? <laughs> I spent a lot of time on carbon over the last few years and love them. I, the only reason I'm not on them not right now is I just have... I'm kind of in between new wheel sets for a little while here. Um, and so pulling out some of my tried and true industry nines, which I still have to say some of my absolute favorite wheels. But yeah. with that being said, uh, you know, there's some amazing options coming out. Uh, you know, everything we've got Ibis wheels that are fantastic. Uh, Santa Cruz is blowing it up with their wheels. You know, you see every company is kind of moving that direction and getting into this game as much as they can or, or supporting it um, with wheel options on the higher end bikes and stuff. So, yeah, man, I, I'm all well, for Seth, it. Seth, one thing that I wanted to bring up before we call it for the day, a lot of these things here show a pretty significant, like a full on paradigm shift in the industry. So mountain biking is a fairly new yeah. sport. So through the 60s, 70s, road biking was huge, and everyone rode road bikes. And then in the 80s, mountain biking started to take off, but it was still tiny. Mm-hmm. And all the influence came really from the road side of things. And a lot of guys, like a lot of the top mountain bike pioneers back then, did have like a motocross background. Every now and then, a BMX guy would yep. come in. But still, I mean, like this 10 by 135 rear end spacing that Charlie was pushing – the road bikes, road bikes are there now, right? Uh, yeah, they're actually my yeah. uh, cross bike, my super muter, uh, is actually pushing bigger than that these days. So is it one forty eight? It's one forty two. So yeah, twelve one forty two. But yeah, no, it's it's uh, it's grown in the the road world to to match this. But it originally was uh, by one hundred and uh, or sorry one thirty. And I think at one point it was one hundred. Yeah. Is really narrow, but it was one thirty for a long time. And but so much of the stuff that we're noting is super rad technological advancements. Yep. It's where we were getting away from the old road bike tech. Yeah. And I don't know if it's because a lot of the, you know, there's definitely company owners that are more road bike focused, more of a road background that are only signing off on the tech that makes sense from a road standpoint when applied to mountain mm-hmm. bikes. I don't know if it's that, but mountain biking's really come into its own as its own sport and it's validated a lot of this stuff. So like those spline bottom bracket spindles. Mm-hmm. On the road, now people have gone to that, but there was no need on road bikes to ever go to a spline. Be this, the lighter weight square taper it was stiff enough when you're seated and pedaling. Mm-hmm. So just a lot of these things. I mean, on the road, people only recently has tubeless road really become a thing. So to actually get away from that whole background and see mountain biking kind of mature to the point that a lot of this tech can, can be, it can exist. I remember an article by Mike Ferentino in Bike Mag in his grimy handshake column <laughs> where he said somewhere Tulio Campagnolo is rolling over in his grave <laughs> because his, his development, that quick release patent, that 9 by 10 front QR is fully dead. Yeah. And that was the one thing that, you know, up until 2000, not 2010 or so, 
every single bike out there, except for a downhill bike, had a nine millimeter, nine by 100 front QR, road bike, mountain bike, all of them. And then finally QR15 came out and put an end to that. And it was just like, holy smokes, that's true. And looking at my old Mojo tie, it's like so many of these parts are cross compatible with a road bike. Yep. And you know, it's not the same thing for sure, but a lot of these developments are showing a big a big shift away from that road influence. Mountain biking is now kind of its own thing. I think that's really I think cool. it's really cool. And I think it's really important for the identity of mountain biking um you know not to take anything away from the road culture but it is very important to um to mountain biking's success and its future and its direction to have its own identity that's strong enough to carry it through right to to make it worthwhile for these companies to invest in new tech and to uh, improving mountain bikes alone, not not in context of their road bikes, but in context of the mountain bikes. And so I think that's really important. And I think it's kind of funny because we mentioned the supermuter. And I think it's interesting because I think we're getting to a place where the mountain bike is so ubiquitous almost at this point and such a powerhouse that it's actually starting to drift the other way and mountain bikes are more so influencing road culture than road culture is influencing mountain <laughs> bike, right? Like, <laughs> I uh, love it. <laughs> disc brakes. And I know there's a lot of fighting back from the road roadside of things uh, on disc brakes on road bikes, but man, let me tell you, I am so thankful every time I get on my Kona that I am there with disc brakes controlled it didn't matter whether i was in rain snow dirt whatever i had good controlled braking and i was so thankful for that and i loved my wider rims on there and i loved my slacker geometry and i loved my tapered head tape- tubes on the road yeah, bikes there we like go so many things that came <laughs> although i don't know where tapered head tubes came out first on mountain bikes or on road but I, you know i don't know this for a fact so i'm going to just go ahead and claim it as mountain bike so <laughs> <laughs> I think we're mountain bike centric here, so we'll let there that fly. There may be a thing, and don't worry, people. We love our our road brethren and sisters, uh, so please, you know, uh, don't feel bad here. But I, I bleed mountain bike inside, so uh, <laughs> but spend a fair bit of time on the road, just with fatter tires cool. and whatnot. So I think that you have a really strong point here, and I think uh, this definitely plays into um, some of what we see happening. Um, kind of in the comment sections of everything, of people frustrated with innovation and tech happening in in the bike world, right? Like a lot of times it feels like the mountain bike industry or bike industry just in general is kind of out to just swoop on our customer base and like trick them into buying standards and stuff. And I think this is more symptomatic of us as a, a... kind of identity culture, finding our footing and figuring out how to do this outside of where we came from, right? Like, so before it was always trying to evolve road stuff into a mountain bike capable setting. And now we're kind of at the stage where the doors are a little bit wide open and we're still figuring out like, okay, how do we do this? How, how do we set standards? Like, 
I personally, I, and I hope maybe Jeff, you can be a part of this. I want somebody to be like, Hey guys, we're going to have a symposium that meets every couple oh. of months. Right. And, I think Chris King organized one of those a yeah. couple times now. There's been multiple summits like yeah, that. So, so people do that, but then there's, you know, yeah, it's never, it's perfect. never perfect. And just uh, for our listeners out there, just know that like, Hey, you know, we're, we're hoping to, like us in the bike industry, Jeff, I'm sure hopes that, you know, we can all just kind of reach standards that stick and mean something and are, are pertinent to our customers. Us on the retailer side, I can guarantee you, we definitely are wanting to make this as easy a process and to give you guys stuff that matters and stuff that's going to benefit your riding. Uh, I think we could do a whole podcast about supposed conspiracies <laughs> right? in the industry. Like oh, I, I jokingly said to Jeff earlier that uh, none of us in the bike industry are nearly that organized enough to make this a conspiracy. <laughs> so, um, you know, obviously well, hey. I'm not at the top there, so I could be wrong, but uh, <laughs> that's my experience so far. So. Awesome. We should probably wrap this up. I think we could definitely, we're going to have some great suggestions from folks about future technological advancements that just need to happen as well as previous technological missteps both those topics are going to be really fun yep. so email us podcast at jensenusa.com uh, thanks for lending us your ears today if you've enjoyed this podcast we recommend subscribing to it on either soundcloud google play or itunes and if you have if we haven't chatted about your favorite topic definitely email us once again that's podcast at jensenusa.com and be sure to follow Jensen's Instagram and Facebook pages. Yep. And as always, be sure to head over to Jeff's most entertaining media channels of, of your choice. He has everything from YouTube. He has his own podcast, actually, that you definitely should check out. Uh, he's got an Instagram channel. He's kind of all over. He's even on Facebook uh, posting stuff up. So if you want to keep up with Jeff, make sure you check him out on all those channels. And you can actually find kind of a conglomerate of all of this at www.jeffkendallweed.com. So make sure you follow him on all those different channels. Uh, in one of his latest videos, I talked about uh, him helping me set up my own DPX2. So if you're looking for some advice or some cool setup, Jeff is a super knowledgeable guy. And at a dead minimum, you're going to find some amazing uh, writing and honestly, probably the most stoked person I have ever come in contact with. So just the stoke is real. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, just make sure you check out his stuff. So I think that wraps things up for us today. Uh, thanks for joining us. And just remember, keep pedaling. Definitely. Cheers, guys. Cheers. All right.